This is the Tech EU podcast, where we discuss some of the most interesting stories from the European tech scene. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasting fix these days. On today's episode, Andre Degler sits down with Molten Ventures partner Nicola McClafferty. My name is Nicola McClafferty. I'm a partner at Molten Ventures, a London-based but pan-European-focused venture capital firm where we invest in sort of early stage and high growth companies uh, across Europe, typically from kind of Series A onwards. Uh, My focus is mostly consumer and sort of software, but sort of consumer and consumer enablement and marketplaces, which is where I spend most of my time. Right. Great. Uh, So we are going to talk a lot actually about the consumer space and uh, the future of retail. Uh, First, I wanted to go a tiny little bit through your experience, uh, which looks uh, very interesting. So you witnessed uh, the VC ecosystem starting from uh, the mid-noughts. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I had my first job in venture capital. I got my first job in venture capital in uh, 2006 in London, when, you know, the London and UK VC ecosystem and the European VC ecosystem looked incredibly different, uh, still sort of fairly nascent at that point. Uh, you know, when you, when you mentioned this to me, I was looking back on some of the numbers, uh, on sort of how that market has and how the market has evolved mm-hmm. over the last sort of 15 years or so. Um, and you look back in 2006, there was about a billion pounds deployed in the UK into VC startups. That number last year was 26 billion pounds. So, you know, a, a 25 plus fold increase uh, in just 15 years. And I think, you know, that characterizes really some of the change that we've seen, which is just the depth of the capital markets and the depth of capital available to companies, to early stage companies, uh, both in the UK, but but across Europe. Uh, I think the there has been, you know, 15 years ago, there were still kind of question marks, I think, on Europe's ability to build and scale global technology companies. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if there was ever a question there, it's been it's been firmly answered. But the sheer scale of number of funds, depth of capital available to companies from seed stage right the way through to growth stage um, has really, really evolved. You know, there's a lot more angel capital in the market, which brings kind of smart capital and a lot of support and resources. Mm-hmm. The volume of companies starting is a lot greater than it ever was. Um and so, you know, to me, it's it's a world apart from from sort of where it was. Right. Yeah, that makes it makes a lot of sense. And did you focus on this same niche, uh, these same categories uh, back in the day? Yeah, we were a generalist uh, mm-hmm. firm. I was with, you know, what what when I joined, they were Benchmark Europe, which was the European arm of of Benchmark Capital out of Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. Um, but they uh, that that team spun away and rebranded to Boulderton. So, so now, now known as Boulderton Capital. But again, we're going, we're going back 15 years uh, yeah. when, you know, the average Series A check that we were writing looked more like, you know, three to four million and not the, not the 15 plus million that we're seeing today. Um, but yeah, the, the firm and the fund was sort of generalist. So everything from consumer through to 
enterprise software and some hardware. Mm -hmm. uh, but I tended to, to spend quite a bit of my time on consumer. I mean, this was at a stage of sort of the, the first wave of e-commerce, you know, retail coming online for the first time, new transaction models emerging. So, you know, we were working with companies like, uh, you know, Ukes in the luxury retail space mm -hmm. through to through to Betfair in the sort of online gaming and gambling space, through to Love Film in the video streaming or what, what was DVD rental, now video streaming space. So really the early wave of sort of first gen of consumer internet businesses that were emerging. Yeah, and then soon after that, you could not uh, resist uh, the urge uh, doing uh, doing something yourself. Indeed, uh, yeah, I think you spent you spent enough time around, you know, really inspiring entrepreneurs, seeing them doing incredible things. Eventually, you 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 feel like you can do it yourself. So, um, so yeah, in 2010, I uh, I left the venture world and I set up uh, a marketplace business, a business called Covetique, and we were um, really positioned as kind of a, a managed marketplace for pre-owned luxury fashion mm -hmm. so uh the early days of you know we talked a lot about the circular economy and you know unlocking the supply side of great uh, you know fashion product and how do you how do you build a dedicated marketplace for that product we were seeing a lot of marketplaces or vertical marketplaces emerging from the more generalist platforms mm -hmm. so when i'd been in venture obviously eBay, you know, existed as a really sort of a large peer-to-peer -peer marketplace, but there were certain categories for which that generalist marketplace, low touch, wasn't necessarily the best experience and, you know, fashion being one of them. So you were seeing the emergence of these more vertical focused um, secondary marketplaces. Mm -hmm. So I set up a company, you know, to do this um, on the fashion side uh, and... You know, that was it was an incredible experience. I mean, I built it over five years. Uh, I think we were probably early enough in mm -hmm. sort of the wave of businesses you see now addressing this space and the sort of circular economy. Um, it for sure was, you know, I think we tapped into a really meaningful consumer need, both on the seller side, which was looking for a hassle free way of doing it on the buyer side that was looking to solve for great product, great prices. But you know, trust and authenticity and a strong consumer retail experience. Um, and so ran that over five years. We, we actually took funding from a strategic, which was mm -hmm. ASOS. Um, and, you know, ultimately, it's, <laughs> you know, I could talk about sort of all the things that went right and then all the things that went wrong. I mean, ultimately, we sort of we struggled to scale it um, And tap into the level of capital that we wanted to 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 really to build the business. So we got it to a certain stage, but um, but I think we had an opportunity to exit the business in 2015, mm -hmm. and I think that was, you know, we 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 took that opportunity at the time and and sold the business to ASOS. Mm -hmm. And what happened to the business later on? What what did ASOS do with it? They ran it for a while, and a lot of the team mm -hmm. went in, but but you know, ultimately they folded. So they they kind of de-emphasized the higher end luxury part, and they folded the rest into their marketplace business. Mm -hmm. So it it kind of and then they rebranded it into the marketplace. And you went all the way back to the VC world. And, and I turned around and came back <laughs> to the investment side. Indeed. <laughs> Now, so uh, as I said, I'm going to uh, try and dig a bit deeper into this uh, consumer space that you're focusing on 
and also e-commerce and marketplaces and the future thereof. But first, I really wanted to talk, do you actually think that we should be talking about it and you should be talking about it at all? Like, do you think a VC in this space is the right person to have a vision of this space? Or is it something that the founders should be having? Or like, what's the difference between the two standpoints in this case? I think it's a very fair question. But, um, and in reality, a, a VC will never have the same perspective or the same position as a founder. I mean, partly that's what drove me to wanting to set up my own business as well and sort of, you know, it's very easy to, well, it's, it's relatively easy to sit at this side of the table and sort of write the checks. It's very different when, you know, you're the one at the at the cold front kind of building and understanding all of the challenges um, in setting up and running and building a, a business. Um, so for sure, you know, VCs never have the same depth uh, of experience in a given business that a, than a founder. But, but I think the benefit we do have uh, as a VC is a breadth of exposure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're a founder, and again, this was my experience of the business, you know, what I, what I love about VC is that we get to sit across lots of different companies. We see loads of different companies at, at any given time when we're choosing to make an investment. And even as we've built a portfolio and take board seats, again, over time, you're sitting on multiple boards across the consumer or the e-com or the retail space and so you're seeing patterns emerging i i'm i'm kind of wary not to sort of overemphasize pattern recognition because that can sometimes just sort of put you sort of in a place where you only look for one thing but what it does mean is that you're seeing companies grapple with the same challenges and those challenges and those problems inevitably repeat they you know they they really do and i think when you're a founder you're so deeply focused on the business on which you're building um, as you should be. And, and again, I had this experience. It can be difficult to step yourself back from that sometimes and take a broader perspective. So I very much see it as that kind of VC and founder relationship as a very sort of symbiotic one where mm -hmm. a VC gets the benefit of a breadth of experience across a portfolio of companies or lots of different businesses. The founder for sure has an incredible depth of experience uh, within a business and 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 bringing those two things together a VC can learn a lot from understanding you know what businesses are going through and how they deal with those challenges and equally the founder should be able to benefit from you know what has gone before or other experiences that the VC might be able to help bring to the table to address challenges they may have seen so as I said a symbiotic relationship and and one that I think when you find the right partner works really well Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's uh, let's keep this in mind when we discuss uh, things further and uh, so take this uh, standpoint. And uh, so, I mean, consumer is still a very vague definition, consumer space. So uh, do you have any particular uh, sort of categories within that that you are focusing on? Uh, how do you describe yourself, what you, uh, what you, uh, what you focus on? Yeah, so, I mean, you're right. Consumer is incredibly broad. Um, and I think, you know, it can, can be defined in sort of lots of different ways. I think the thing that we focus on and that I, that I try to focus on is that at our, at our core, we are still a technology focused firm at right. Moulton. Uh, and I think what you, you know, you will find if you look across the sort of consumer investment landscape is, there are funds that will sort of heavily index on, let's say, the brand building side of consumer. 
And then there are funds and brands that might more heavily index on sort of tech-enabled consumer applications, right? So, so I think there's a distinction between those two things. Brand mm-hmm. building as a long-term value driver is one core proposition, but you know, building consumer applications or tech-enabled consumer applications might be sort of a different a different one. And I think the way we look at it, and certainly the way I look at it, is um, where are there very very huge markets and categories that are seeing structural changes and disruption Mm -hmm. Um, and we sort of focus on those from a kind of a vertical standpoint so what you find in sectors that are going through this these changes is that consumer pull and consumer experience tends to to lead followed by larger technological disruption. Good Mm -hmm. examples of that will be if you look at the fintech space, for example. You know, recently we've been, we we invest a lot on the B2B side of fintech, but actually some of the early pull and changes in the banking space came on the consumer side with consumers demanding a better banking experience. So the emergence of the neo banks Mm -hmm. kind of came before sort of now a broader fintech infrastructure play. And I think you see that replicating across a lot of other verticals. Health tech is another uh, is another space where we spend quite a lot of time. And again, some of the early investment activity in the kind of disruption of the healthcare space has been around new consumer models, be that, you know, consumption of healthcare services, be that sort of different products in the health tech space, how consumers engage with healthcare providers. So it can be distribution models, it can be it can be retail models. But mm-hmm. again, we see those as really huge markets. Food and food tech is another one. Again, huge addressable market. These are slow moving markets. But consumers and the the kind of the last 10 years has 10, 15 years has bred a generation of consumers that just have completely different expectations of how they engage with service providers in all areas of their life be that your healthcare provider your bank your you know where you kind of where you do your food shopping and yet these are sectors that have been incredibly slow moving in readdressing those consumer uh, expectations and so for us that creates a, a huge opportunity so again we focus on categories and markets that are incredibly large scope for huge amount of disruption and where we're seeing structural changes um and i think that's um that's definitely sort of a you know the categories where we've been pretty active over the last few years uh and the e-commerce space is 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 another one again um e-commerce has been isn't necessarily new but it's gone through multiple different iterations and waves Mm. So where we spend a lot of time in e-commerce on the pure consumer side, it, it tends to be new engage, new retail models or new models of discovery. Uh, so again, or, or you know, on, on the consumer side or the enablement side is is you know what is the enablement infrastructure to support mm-hmm. the growth in e-commerce? Um, we've been a little less focused focused on just pure D2C retail, mm-hmm. um, l- largely because that tends to start falling into the brand building side. Right. Uh, and again, uh, when we look at categories for which there is 
really open white space and ability to to really assess the intangibles around what's going to build a global scale brand it can be it can be more difficult in that space so again on the e-commerce side we tend to focus on either new distribution or new shopping or new discovery models or equally on the kind of enablement infrastructure that supports the growth of either new brands or sort of or long tail retail mm-hmm. and uh, can you give me some examples like uh, what uh, what have been some interesting deals that you've been involved in so if you look at like in the the Food tech space, uh, we led the Series B of a business called All Plants last mm-hmm. year. Um, and again, that's a, it's a D2C subscription business. What was really compelling for us and, and sort of what underpinned our thesis there was we'd been really deep diving on the food space and how much of that change is driven by not only new retail and new distribution models, but just changing consumer tastes and with with all plants uh they are sort of sitting at the intersection of sort of three of the fastest growing areas of mm-hmm. of food retail which is plant-based foods uh very much responding to consumer pull towards more sustainable and plant-based food options uh frozen uh which is actually the fastest growing category within any given retail environment hmm. uh, or food retail environment if you talk to m- m- a lot of the grocery providers and uh and convenience um so plant uh, all plants offer is a subscription based uh plant based meals um mm-hmm. and you know the growth that they had seen over the last couple of years because they solve for all of that which is i i get to have a very convenient uh option in my in my freezer that is a, a world away from the kind of previous iteration of ready meals which is it's it's convenient it's plant based it's super healthy um and and so for us we felt that actually this is a space where there is scope to build a national and an international brand and and you know all plants are well positioned to do that so so that's a really interesting one if you look at the health tech space we invested in a in a business called actia which is a mm-hmm. blood pressure monitoring business um again you know a lot of work and, and a lot of this gets led or you know I, i also work closely with other colleagues that focus on other verticals and, mm-hmm. and our digital health vertical is run by one of my colleagues inga um And so that is all about looking at how patients are taking much greater control of their healthcare journeys and their healthcare data. And so sort of devices and consumer health data is, is a core part of that. And we see that as a very significant opportunity. Uh, we've also been investor, we're an investor in Clue, mm-hmm. female, female health tech business focused on um life cycle of female health from fertility from from period and fertility tracking and most recently they launched a digital contraceptive um on the e-commerce side you know we've again we've always been active businesses like Trustpilot I think is a is a really interesting example of almost an early enablement business which is how do you bring trust to the online retail ecosystem so again mm-hmm. that was a model that had a consumer facing website but also effectively sold a trust product to retailers online um agora which is a, a new shopping experience targeting gen z's in the beauty space 
beauty is still a category that is dramatically underpenetrated online. Uh, so we invested in a community and content and commerce based mm-hmm. uh, business that's kind of redefining the shopping and discovery experience for beauty products. Um, and then, of course, you know, as we sort of start to talk about enablement, we we invested in uh, a business last year called Mana, which is a drone delivery <laughs> business for uh, for food, uh, for convenience food. So, again, not directly. They, they are. They have a D2C product you order directly from Mana, but they are also very much an enablement tool for last mile logistics for the the food and the e-com space. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I wanted to pick up on this uh, e-commerce part of things uh, because, uh, as far as I understand, you also uh, you also tend to look into uh, the questions related to technical infrastructure of uh, of e-commerce. And uh, so, what uh, what do you think? Is there that needs this structural change that you mentioned before? Or what uh, was the next uh, next wave, next generation uh, going to be like uh, from your uh, from your expertise, from your perspective? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, look, we we very much come through. I sort of see it as three waves of e-commerce, right? The first wave was sort of what we touched on before: first generation mm-hmm. of bringing retail online, largely represented by sort of multi-brand retail. Uh, and kind of the big pure play online retail uh, mm-hmm. businesses across, you know, be it an Amazon or an ASOS or a Net-A-Porte or, you know, um, that was really sort of the first wave. The, the second wave was much more around the emergence of D2C, uh, which was enabled by a combination of newer platforms like a, a Shopify that allowed smaller merchants to to build an online presence in a very frictionless and easy way but also combined with sort of evolution in the manufacturing sector and supply chains that allowed for a much more direct data-driven and sort of low-volume-driven relationship with manufacturers that allowed smaller businesses to design, develop, and launch new products mm. and then distribute them directly to consumers via uh, via you know, their own web store on a, on a Shopify very much characterized the sort of second wave of, of e-com, which is what we've seen over the last, you know, 10, five to 10 years or so. To me, the, the sort of third wave of e-commerce is all about actually how do you continue to scale e-commerce and what does, to your point, what does the technical infrastructure look like to drive the next level of growth? Because despite what we've talked about in those kind of early two waves, E-commerce penetration, if you go back to pre-COVID, still only sat at about 15-16%. Mm-hmm. So for all of the activity and all of the innovation we have seen in e-commerce, it is still a relatively small proportion of consumer retail. Now, obviously the pandemic changed that, and you know, you and the US that penetration doubled from kind of 15-16% to about uh 30% in, in 2020. So the whole e-com industry and that transition to online purchasing behavior by consumers saw a decade of growth in what amounted to six months, uh, which is sort of a phenomenal amount of growth. But actually what that means is you're looking at a whole sector and a volume of retail and purchase behavior happening online that's leveraging an infrastructure, be that a software infrastructure 
or a physical infrastructure by me, I mean, kind of warehousing and fulfillment and logistics Mm -hmm. that has been built, you know, and is 15, 20 years old and was built to service that sort of first generation and maybe into the second generation of retail. Uh, And so now we're having to look really much more closely at, I mean, combined with that, I should say, Businesses like Amazon have a lot to answer for in terms of the level of expectation that they have set for consumers in terms of what a consumer retail experience looks like online. You know, no longer is it acceptable for somebody to have to wait a week for, for you know, everybody wants the on-demand experience. Everybody wants, you know, instant gratification. Everybody wants returns to be absolutely seamless. And so that's putting an added layer or an added bar on retailers to deliver that level of of customer experience. And yet, you know, I talked about Shopify. I mean, phenomenal business, but it's a software and a platform that was built in 2006. It's 15 years old. And so when I talk about e-commerce infrastructure, I think there's kind of, there's a couple of layers to it, which is as you look at the volume that's coming down the line now, given this increase in penetration, um, how do we scale up and bring a better experience to the physical infrastructure um, Mm -hmm. that delivers on a much more seamless, frictionless experience for both brands, which are way more fragmented now than they used to be. So instead of a warehouse or a fulfillment infrastructure having to service one brand with, you know, huge volume, they're now having to deal with hundreds or thousands of much, much, much smaller brands. It's a much more fragmented, long tail ecosystem. So how does the physical infrastructure need to evolve to service this long tail of demand and keep both speed and flexibility and visibility uh, to the end consumer? So fulfillment and the physical infrastructure and the last mile delivery infrastructure is sort of a key key theme there. Then if you look at sort of the, the software side of the business as well, I mean, as I said, a lot of the software that powers e-commerce today is software that was built 10, 15 years yeah. ago. Um, and actually, there's been very, very little innovation <laughs> in the consumer experience of purchasing online. So when you look at the flexibility and the customer experience that brands are now expected to deliver, that can be really hard to do without, you know, based on existing infrastructure. So you're seeing the emergence now of a whole new tech stack without getting too Mm -hmm. detailed, which is sort of API-led and much more flexible to allow retailers, to allow marketeers to create much better, more flexible, creative customer experiences without necessarily having to leverage a whole team of developers to do it. So this is is the emergence of the kind of headless e-commerce infrastructure. And that's about... Instead of having to deploy a team of developers to build a great new e-commerce product, it, it allows marketeers, content creators, a lot more flexibility in how they build a consumer experience that might be more innovative, more creative, more unique. And then the, the third piece of it is is mobile. And, you know, this may sound this may kind of sound sort of simple. I mean, 70% of tra- all transactions now happen on mobile. And yet we are still, for the most part, unless you are an Amazon or a very large retailer that can afford to build a native mobile app, you're generally working off 
software or applications that were kind of built in a desktop first world. Uh, and so 70% of, of purchasing behavior is happening on mobile, and yet mobile conversion rates are still two to three X lower than desktop rates. Again, the infrastructure, the speed, the latency, and the customer experience just hasn't kept pace with the shift to mobile. Um, and so again, there's a lot more opportunity in developing more flexible um, and simpler mobile apps that can leverage now a more dynamic and flexible tech stack. And I think that's mm -hmm. where we're gonna see you know, all of this infrastructure play and more of it, we're definitely talking more of a sort of a B2B play, but it is products, services, and technologies that are being built now to service the long tail retailers that are servicing brands, that are servicing marketeers to enable and support this, you know, evolving and very rapidly growing volume of online purchasing. Yeah. And if we look from the from the side of the customer, the side of the, of the person who is uh, purchasing stuff, when you talk about creative user experiences, do you mean shopping in metaverse? <laughs> I I have I remember when Second Life came out, like <laughs> nearly twenty odd years ago, and people were spinning up brands and products in Second Life. Now oh, it yes. took about four hours to download the client, and my IT guy used to go mad with the amount of bandwidth it used, but. Uh, but so I look, I have I don't know necessarily about shopping in the uh, in the metaverse, but I think what is for sure. And I think what you find, I, I think a lot about this content community and commerce. Right. Mm -hmm. How do these three things come together to create a new customer experience? But I also think retail is. There was physical retail has often been an entertainment experience, you know, people meeting up with their friends, going browsing, young guys and girls and teenagers hanging out in malls and going to shops. And and actually in an online world, it became a much more functional experience and it, it became a lot less social. But again, I think that's turning back again. And, and you know, Facebook and, and, and Instagram have been early movers in this space around, you know, how do you bring a social dynamic to to shopping and sharing mm -hmm. and how do you bring a community together around um, around shopping? And I think it's been slower in Europe. I mean, China has, has led the market clearly in social shopping uh, and in new shopping models. You're going to see a lot more of it as, as video infrastructure has become, mm -hmm. you know, more common. Uh, and more easy to deploy. I think it, you know that's bringing a new dynamic to retail experiences. So for sure, we are going to see new shopping models, new models of engaging with products. Live streaming is going to play a, a bigger role. We're seeing you know, a lot of interesting companies leveraging video for live streaming. We're seeing really new discovery models that are, you know, combining with building a community mm -hmm. around a kind of a core category that, you know, allows for generation of, of content and sharing that drives to more sort of e-com interactions and transactions, co-browsing tools. I, I think we're going to see a lot more in that space mm -hmm. uh, over the next sort of certainly two to three to five years. 
So are we going to see shopping TV channels coming back with some extra um, extra features? We already are. Um, I mean, we already are. It's it's slow. Hmm. I mean, you again, you only need to look at the at the Chinese market and the scale of of uh, of what's happening over there in terms of live shopping and the the volume of transactions that that can drive when done right. Um, but yeah, I think we will. QVC will be coming back <laughs> <laughs> online. <laughs> I dread, I dread the prospect, I have to say. Uh, but uh, also, I, I, I thought of another uh, trend that uh, I think is also happening from, from, from where I sit at least, and uh, which could be a bit of a different uh, kind of undercurrent in the uh, world of e-commerce. Do you think that people are actually uh, going to start buying less stuff? I think people are certainly going to be buying smarter. And that could mean buying less mm -hmm. for sure um people are switching their buying behavior to a more value driven motivation and we're seeing that across the board be that brands that feel authentic or are feel more personalized or that really have a genuine sustainability angle because we know how much of an influence that has on now increasingly on people's purchasing decisions. Uh, so I think we are definitely going to see a change in purchasing behavior. I think people are being more thoughtful about what they buy. Uh, net, net, that probably does mean people buying less. It, it certainly means people are buying smarter um and that's before i mean you know i would also think over the next year or two we are coming into a challenging consumer environment from a from an inflationary standpoint so that is also going to have an impact i think on some of the purchasing behavior so i do think we are going to see a a squeeze because of the macro environment on consumer spend uh in the next one in the next year Uh, but there is definitely a broader structural shift towards mm -hmm. smarter and more sustainable purchasing. And do you see your portfolio getting ready for this shift? Um, it's where we, it, it underpins a lot of the investment thesis, right? Mm -hmm. We we take long-term views on any business that we back. And so, you know, All Plants is a good example of that, which is where do we think consumers are going to be deploying or redeploying their spend what do we think are the categories that people are going to be moving away from and shifting their spend to and making sure that we are um, backing companies that are addressing what we think are the long-term kind of consumer trends mm -hmm. i see yeah well that, that that makes sense so uh towards the end of the conversation i really wanted to uh move on to a totally different topic and uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, your own uh, your own background that we started discussing at the beginning so i, I just uh, see a lot of people uh, make uh, these uh, transact transition between a founder and vc in any uh, way but usually it's just a, a one-way uh, transition in your case it's uh, there and back so How did you feel about this uh, switching sides, really, each time that you went uh, first from VC to founder and then from founder to VC? Did you think that you were coming to something better, something that you can do better? Like, wh wh what was the thinking and feeling like? I'm not sure it was necessarily something better. I think you make sort of... I tend to think people 
make the right decisions for them at the right time. I had spent a number of years in VC. Mm-hmm. And I think the firm that I worked with at the time, most of the senior partners in that firm had built or run companies. So there was definitely, I kind of came up in an environment where there was a DNA or an mm-hmm. ethos of having operational experience that adds to being a good a good investor ultimately, uh, or that gives you a different perspective. Um, and so I... I kind of very much believed that to be true. I also think that, you know, at the time I had an idea, I felt I spotted an opportunity. And actually, I dismissed it kind of straight away. I kind of noodled on it. And I spoke to some friends about it. But I never thought about doing anything about it. Because I just, I I didn't and still don't. Uh, but I never saw myself as an entrepreneur in inverted commas, right? I just didn't identify with that. I never sort of set out to, I'm not a technical person by background. I didn't necessarily set out to say, I really want to build something. I really want to be an entrepreneur. I didn't necessarily. I just had been sitting in these markets and seeing all of this happening with marketplaces with flash sale models with consumer demands with retail and I just sort of felt like this there's an obvious problem and gap here somebody should be doing it and I started out by looking for other companies that were doing it and I couldn't find any to back (laughs) (laughs) and then when it wouldn't leave me and I I eventually thought okay well maybe I should you know I I've certainly went where I was at the time in VC there was sort of a a a ceiling as to how far I could go, right? Because their view was very much, if you want to become a partner in VC long-term, you go, you get operational experience. So it was always on the radar that I would, mm. you know, step out and 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 do something different. And I think, you know, I was in my mid-20s at the time and I kind of stepped out and I said, okay, well, even if I want to be a VC long-term, actually getting a different, different experience, different perspective will be additive to that. So at at, at best, I kind of go do this, and 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 it helps. So, yeah. So I set up, I set up the company and did that. And actually, you know, very quickly, I, you know, I, I loved it. You, what I love about VC is is the breadth, but then you never go truly deep enough. And and that's what I loved about building the company, which was the time I got to spend uh, grappling with those challenges, building a team, working with a team, figuring out how to build something how to scale something and so I wouldn't change it for the world huge huge amount of learnings Um, there's some things that we got very right and that went really well and there's some things that we just that we got wrong Um, and and you know that's what you learn most from so you know it was it was an amazing experience and uh, learned a huge amount from it Um, but anyone who's who's been there and done that will just will tell you how, how hard it is and it really is it's a very person it's a much more personal journey when you're a founder um it definitely feels like your baby in a way that just being a vc never can feel that way right the highs are higher the lows are lower um and so when you know when i sort of sold the company and came out of it to me you know i coming back into vc i felt like it actually gives me a whole new perspective on talking to founders, talking to entrepreneurs. And and I felt like founders and entrepreneurs looked at me differently as well as a as an investor or as a potential investor, having sat at, you know, on the other side of the table or having been in their shoes. 
And now that you now that you're back in the VC world and you're uh, looking at uh, taking this broad view at uh, the categories you're working in, how many times per week do you get ideas of new startups like uh, like that you had back in uh, 2010? Not that many. I, I mean, <laughs> honestly, not that many. I still I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur. I'm I'm not. I I think I probably am better at doing this than I was at doing that. Um, <laughs> I, you know, and the reality is I, I, what I do get to do is meet phenomenal founders with, uh, you know, doing phenomenal things, um, you know, in an environment that it's, it's on one hand, there's, there's so much more support and ability to set up and launch a business, but on the other hand, finding new ideas and doing something that's truly innovative and truly disruptive, you know, it, it, it's hard. It's hard to do that. Uh, and so I I love my position and it's a privileged position to be able to sit and meet with other people doing it. I, I don't spend my time trying to come up with other ideas, um, but I do spend my time trying to work really closely with, with entrepreneurs that have those visions and ideas and help figure out if, if we can help them turn that and into, into a reality and to scale it to something that we all hope it can be. So how many deals do you have in your pipeline right now? Oh, lots. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a busy market um which is which is great. Um I you know, we're probably looking at uh I probably meet with 10 me personally, I mean across mm -hmm. the team the numbers are going to be huge, but bigger but me personally I probably meet with 10 to 15 new companies a week. Um, and, you know, as a partner, each of us might do three new deals a year. Um, mm -hmm. we're in, unfortunately, we're in the business of saying no, which is, you know, <laughs> the, the, the dirty secret of VC, but, um, but it's still a, it's a really exciting place to be. Um, and I'm seeing just so much incredible opportunity and talent across Europe, um, so hopefully we get the chance to partner with more people in the consumer and enablement space. <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds very optimistic. It's a great, uh, great way to finish it. Nicole, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for this conversation. Thanks a lot for sharing uh, your thoughts and your perspective and uh, good luck with the deals. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you liked our show, follow us today wherever you listen to podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are very welcome. Please send them to podcast at tech.eu and they will most certainly be ignored. <laughs>